Well, we are going to begin a new series. We're going to do a series working our way through the book of James. So the book of James, New Testament book, five chapters, all kinds of fancy, wonderful stuff in the book of James. It's been a book that's been very influential for me. And there's some strong stuff in James. I really like the book of James because it's like a headline book, you know, like boom, boom, boom. No like uh, slow stuff in the book of James. He just starts off when we get to verse two, it'll be like, wow, you know, man, why don't you wade into the water? But he just jumps right in. So let's, uh, let's pray and we'll start our new series on the book of James. So heavenly father, thank you for this day. And thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us to just wander around and figure it out on our own. But Lord, you guide us by your Holy Spirit and you guide us by your word. Father, help us to see what your word has for us today as it is living and active. Lord, let your words come alive. And Father, as each one of us here is dealing with different things, we're going through different trials and struggles. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would touch each one of us with just what we need. Because, Lord, you are well able to do that, and that's, that's what you want to do. And so, Lord, I ask you for that and ask you to bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, who is this James? James from the book of James. There's a very famous James who is one of the 12 disciples, and more than that, one of the three in the inner circle that Jesus brought with him to very important events. And so uh, Jesus had circles of people that had access to him. And of course, the 12 disciples had more access than the crowds. But then there was the three, Peter, James, and John, that had the greatest access to Jesus. And this is not that James. That James was martyred in Acts chapter 12, and he was already dead by the time the book of James was written. So it was not that James. And uh, the consensus among the Bible scholars is that this James is actually the little brother of Jesus, was in Jesus' family. It was one of his brothers. Uh, And we look at in... in, um, Matthew chapter 13, we see a description of Jesus' family where Jesus is doing ministry and then he comes to his hometown to do some ministry and it doesn't go particularly well. So let's read that account in Matthew chapter 13. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Isn't this the kid that was in my soccer group in mega camp? You know, isn't this the one that I taught Sunday school to? Who is this kid? You know, by now he's 30 years old, but, you know, in a small town, you're, as long as you're younger than somebody, you're still a kid. Doesn't matter if they're 80 and you're 70, you're a kid. So they did not recognize who he was because they were too familiar, too uh, used to who he was. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this just a normal middle-class kid from our little town? 
How's he going to amount to anything? Now, there's a lesson inside of that, which is this. God can do mighty things with small packages. God can do mighty things in unusual locations. You don't have to look high and mighty and incredible and amazing for God to do mighty things with you. You know, Jesus could have been born in Jerusalem to one of the highest families. But he grew up in a little town where people said, can anything good come from there? And he was disrespected in that town because he was from that town. (laughs) Because nothing good comes from here. And he's a middle-class guy. His family didn't even think he was all that fancy, especially the younger ones. And here's the deal. I heard it. You know, I, I pastored in Big Fork for a long time, 10 years in Big Fork. So north of Grand Rapids, out in the middle of nowhere. Fantastic world. Yeah. And uh, one of the people I knew, so Effie is a smaller town, seven miles north. And one of the people that I knew there had heard when she was younger and wanting to be someone, she had heard, well, you're just a girl from Effie. You know, who do you think you are wanting to be someone? Well, here's the deal. God will take people from anywhere and pick them up and do mighty things with them. Don't limit yourself by your upbringing, where you're from, any of those sorts of things. Understand God does mighty things. And I believe that's why Jesus was from a small town was to show you don't have to be from the highfalutin group in Jerusalem. You can be from the little town and God will do mighty things with you. Amen. So believe God for that. But this James there is who people think the James of the book of James is the little brother of Jesus. (laughs) What a relationship that would be with Jesus to be his little brother. I wonder what that was like, you know, and yet at some point, instead of seeing his brother as his older brother and whatever that was like, he came to know this Jesus as the Lord and Christ. And he became a pillar of the church, James. So let's look into the book of James and see what he has to say. James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he calls his older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. So this is a book that's written to everyone. If you're a believer out there somewhere, hello. (laughs) Here's a book for you. Now, many of the books in the New Testament are written to particular audiences, and you have to interpret them based on that. Like, for example, the book of Galatians was written by Paul to the church in Galatia. 
Now, of course, there's important things that everyone can learn from the book of Galatians. However, you have to know that they were getting legalistic and they were getting hung up on certain things. And so Paul was correcting those issues in Galatia. And so it's written to a particular audience. You understand the audience, you can understand the book. Paul also wrote to the Corinthians in Corinth, to the church there. And they were going through different issues. The church in Galatia was getting too rigid. They were slipping into religion and back into the ways of, well, follow all these rules and then you're good versus the ways of the spirit and and connecting with God, loving God and and growing in uh, the power of the spirit. Instead of that, they were getting legalistic. Now the Corinthians were just going bonkers. You know, they were getting wild and they're like, Hey, you know, we're saved by grace. We can sin in any way we want. And they're getting crazy. So Paul writes to paraphrase Paul writes to the Corinthians guys you've got to tighten up the ship here you're getting too loose you need to tighten up Paul writes to the Galatians you guys need to loosen up you're you're too tight you need to let it go and so understanding who it's being written to is very important because if you're somebody who's rigid and you're wanting to have lots of rules and you read the letter to the Corinthians, you're like, yeah, we need more rules. Well, no, you need to read the Galatian letter and loosen up. If you're somebody who's like, Hey, whatever is cool, man. Well, and then you read Galatians, you're like, see, we're just going to let it all go. No, you need to read the Corinthian letter, you know, and, and get, get a grip on stuff. So understanding the audience is very important. But in James, it's just written in general to whoever's out there. So this isn't to a specific person to correct a specific problem or to a specific church to correct a specific problem. This is universal. And so we want to look at it from that perspective. And so from that perspective, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. We'll just hold it right there. All right. So the book of James probably written about 8060, maybe 8062. What were the believers going through at that period in history? They were going through persecutions. They were going through their property being confiscated. They were going through being Uh, thrown out of church for their beliefs. They were going through public beatings in Acts chapter five. It talks about how uh, people were proclaiming Christ and then they were publicly beaten and told not to talk about Jesus anymore. And they went away rejoicing because they were counted worthy of suffering for the cause of Christ. And this considerate pure joy is that sort of a thing, but they were going through some trials. You know, we can think that, oh, yeah, it's the Bible. Everything was great. It was hard. Life was difficult in AD 60. However, life is difficult now, too. It's just different kinds of difficult. The struggles we go through, the trials we go through are significant and powerful, but they're different. Hallelujah, we live in a country with freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Hallelujah for that. I don't have to fear being t- 
taken somewhere and don't you talk about Jesus, we're going to beat you up. And it's the government doing that. Or, you know, it's organized around that. We don't have to worry about that. Hallelujah. It's fantastic. However, do we still go through trials? Yes, we do. Are we still to follow James 1-2 in our trials? Consider it pure joy. Not just joy. (laughs) Pure joy. This is... So I looked up the Greek word and all that stuff, and, and one of the ways you can see what this is describing is it's a quiet contentment. Just a... You know how sometimes you just have a smile on your face and you're just, life is good. A quiet contentment. Whenever you're going through something really, really hard, just have a quiet contentment about yourself. Consider it pure joy. How exactly are we supposed to do this? (laughs) How does this work? Because... You break your leg, consider it pure joy, right? Your house gets foreclosed on, consider it pure joy. You're having terrible family problems, consider it pure joy. You know, you lose your job, consider it pure joy. How do we actually do this? I mean, right? Let's read the next two verses. And when we read the next two verses, we'll see what the goal is. Because you know there's a reason why we're here on this planet, right? There's a reason why we go through hardships and difficulties. God doesn't just put us straight into heaven. We got to go through this mess to get there, right? Why is that? Next two verses. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So is perseverance good? Perseverance is good. It's a strengthening. Perseverance is better than uh, impatience. When we learn to persevere, then we are getting stronger. So the testing of your faith develops perseverance, but that's not the finish. Verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How many people can get on board with mature and complete, not lacking anything? that sound good? Mature and complete, not lacking anything. Hallelujah. So what James is saying is that if we interpret trials the right way, they can be the catalyst for personal growth that causes us to develop perseverance, becoming mature and complete, not lacking anything. And that personal growth is worth the struggle. That new place of being is worth the difficulty. So consider it pure joy because you know that you serve a God that will not leave you in the trial, that will not abandon you in the mess, but will help you through it, will strengthen you through it, will heal you through it, will bring you into victory on the other side, and you will be better off there. So consider it pure joy because you see the goal. You see where you're going to get through it. Amen? Amen. 
Trials don't always make us better, though, do they? (laughs) Sometimes we're in the middle of a trial and we get stuck. Sometimes we go through something hard and we are crushed. We're pulled down. One of the things that I find challenging when talking about things like this, consider it pure joy when you go through trials of many kinds. One of the things I find challenging is people go through hard things. And this isn't a flippant dismissal of your pain. It isn't, oh, just don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. Just be happy. That's not what verse 2 means. And I am I'm always a little nervous that people are going to take considerate pure joy as dismissing the pain, dismissing the struggle, dismissing the power of the hardships that we go through. Because I do not believe that God is saying to us that, you know, don't worry about it. I think what God is saying to us is that whatever pain, whatever struggle, whatever hardship you've been through, in the midst of that, God's power to heal is still there. In the midst of that, God's power to redeem is still there. And you can get stronger on the other side if you interpret it the right way. But if you interpret it the wrong way, You can be crushed. You can become bitter. You can get worse. But instead, you can get stronger. Pastor Corey last week talked about a note he got in a book that they bought on Amazon. And there was just a piece of paper in there. And on the piece of paper, it said, suffering is inevitable. Misery is optional. Suffering is inevitable. The question is, how will we interpret that suffering? How will we experience that suffering? Misery is optional. Now, again, Jesus wept for people. God, his heart breaks. When we are hurting, it isn't that we are to dismiss the pain we've gone through. It's that we are to believe that God can redeem. We are to believe that God can heal. We are to believe that when we go through these hardships, if we interpret God as good and being able to help us through this, that we can get to somewhere better on the other side. problem is, is a lot of times it's just hard and we don't get better. Some of the, some of the trials we go through, I'm just going to use a couple of simple examples. If you've been married, did you know marriage is in verse two of, of uh, James chapter one? There it is. (laughs) 
marriage is in there. <laughs> right? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. One of those trials is marriage. Now, how many people know a marriage relationship, it can, it can take you down, you can get stuck, or you can get better? Well, you have to believe you can get better to get better. The joke that my wife and I always make, we just celebrated our 26th wedding anniversary last, earlier this month. Hey, still July. I was thinking, I'm thinking August already. All right, still July. Earlier this month, and so the joke is, you know, we're celebrating 18 years of wedded bliss on our 26th anniversary. And, you know, because every year isn't a good one, right? Some of them are tough. The question is, are you going to get better or not? The question isn't whether or not they're all going to be good and easy and happily ever after, you know, baloney, happily ever after. But now we are at the best place we've ever been 26 years in, not because it's been easy, but because we believe that God can do something better than what we've got. We believe that we can learn a lesson through this. We believe that we can have joy in the trial because, wow, if it's this hard, think of the great things we're going to learn. You know, look at how much perseverance we're going to have. You know, it's going to be great. And now we've got to the other side. How do we interpret these things? Very, very important. One of the things that happens uh, like the worship team is a classic example of spiritual attacks and having to deal with that and just putting on a church service, spiritual attacks. And when things just go haywire, you know, every now and again, something goes wrong, but some days five things go wrong at the same time. What is that? Well, I consider it a spiritual attack. And then the question is, how do we interpret that? Oh no, the enemy is, found out about us and he's coming against us. We're in trouble now. No, what I think is, well, God must have a good plan. God must have something really, really cool he wants to do. And so hallelujah for that. Look at that. We're going we're gonna to believe God for something great to happen because otherwise the enemy wouldn't be coming against us. Interpret it that way. Consider it pure joy. Start getting excited. Then the attacks start to get less and less. Because why would the enemy want to encourage us? You know, he's going to come against us and we're like, yes, (laughs) it's going to be a good day. Well, he don't want to do that. He starts leaving us alone. What we want is when the difficulties come to interpret those the right way so that we aren't crushed, so that we don't get stuck, but that we progress becoming mature and complete, not lacking anything, not lacking experience not lacking courage, not lacking emotional strength, not lacking perspective, not lacking anything. You got to step into the mess, take some blows, experience the trials, and then get better on the other side. Consider it pure joy. Now, if we want to be super simple, over simple, Because, you know, life is complicated. This is a difficult world to live in. I think there's three 
broad categories of trials, right? There's the trials that are our fault. I'm going through this because I messed up. Then there are the trials that just have to do with this world being messed up. You know, it's just like, man, there's, there's yuckiness here. It wasn't really me. I just happened to be here in the middle of this mess. And then there's the trials that have to do with serving God and the difficulties that come in that. There's a war between heaven and hell. And when we get into that war, there are trials and struggles. There's suffering and pain in that. The way we respond to each one of those three needs to be different. The first one. Let's read James 1, 13 through 15. If we are going to suffer for our own mistakes. So like if I'm having marriage problems because I've been um, saying mean things to my wife. Is that God testing me? No, that's me putting myself through a trial, right? The author of that problem is me. If I say mean things to my wife and so I have a relationship problem, that's I am the one who created that problem. God does not have anything to do with that. That's me. So let's go to James 1.13. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Does God tempt anyone? No. He will test you, which is very similar. (laughs) But there's a difference between testing and tempting. Tempting is designed to pull you down. Testing is designed to bring you up. God tests so that we can pass the test and so that we can get to the next level. The enemy tempts to pull us down. And we can, just because of our own nature, be the author of that ourselves. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, He is dragged away and enticed. One of the incredible things about the book of James is how much personal responsibility he puts on the individual. You know, one of the things that in Christian circles that we can do is like, well, you know, God's in control and I guess whatever, and not take any personal responsibility. And that is not learning the lesson. That's just saying some vague Christian platitude and, trying to feel better. Well, here in James, it's so much about you can deal with this. You can get here, but you have to do it. And here, boy, (laughs) temptation happens. We go after it. We are dragged away and enticed. It's on us. Verse 15, then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. One of the things that can trip people up is they don't realize this process takes a lot of time. So they start the process and they're like, oh, that's not so bad. And they don't realize they're on a road to destruction because the beginning of the road isn't so tough, but the end of the road is really bad. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. 
if we are suffering because of our own mistakes, the own, our own sin, the things we're doing wrong, the response is to repent. Right? If I'm causing problems in my family because of the things I'm doing wrong, I need to just change. Right? I need to accept the forgiveness of God and be a different person. Repent. If I am suffering because this world is broken and there was an economic crash and I had a lot of money in the wrong places, well, what do I do with that? You don't really repent, right? You resist that. You resist. I consider the aging process to be part of the curse. You know? Uh, I'm 48. That's not that old. But stuff hurts that didn't used to hurt. You know, like things don't work the same as they used to work. And I I would like for them to not hurt, you know? And so it's not that I need to repent for aging, but I just need to resist aging. I need to eat right, exercise, stay healthy, do the best I can. I want to resist that, right? And like you get sick, you resist it. It's not a sin to get sick. Get sick, resist. And then if we are in the middle of the war and we're serving God and we suffer because of it, we take a stand for Jesus and people make fun of us or we lose things for it. Then we rejoice. We rejoice because we have actually stepped into the front lines of the battle between heaven and hell. Consider it pure joy. When you face trials of many kinds that helps us to guard our hearts and stay on a growth track at the same time. There is a key skill in learning how to be able to grow and learn and overcome rather than getting crushed. And James describes this in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Verse 19. My my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I always wonder, what would it be like if every believer put into practice what the scriptures had to say? What if every believer considered it pure joy when they faced trials of many kinds? When the political candidate they didn't like gets voted in. And they considered it pure joy. And or you know, oh, this group did something I didn't like and considered it pure joy instead of getting offended. What if all the believers considered it pure joy when they face trials of many kinds? What if all the believers were quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to react emotionally to the situation? You know, this is the man emotion, anger. Men get one emotion. Anger. You know, ladies get all kinds of them. You know, they get all these different emotions. We only get one, and it's anger or nothing. You know, that's all we get. So this is clearly written to men, you know. But I think we can apply it to everyone and say, be careful about getting emotionally tied up in the situation too fast. Yes, you're going through a difficulty. Don't get emotionally tied in, up in it too fast. Don't get uh, into a victim mentality too fast. Don't get depressed too fast. Don't get angry too fast. 
Be quick to listen, meaning observe, look, pay attention, learn. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. I find that when I begin to speak, I stop learning. I can say what I've already learned, but I'm not going to learn more when I'm talking. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's a vocational hazard for me, but you know what I mean? When you're paying attention, when you're listening, when you're watching, you're learning. Once you start explaining what's going on, you're done learning. Now you're just taking your stand. And being slow to become angry, that causes problems. Verse 20, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So once we just start getting upset about stuff, it's going to cause problems. When we consider it pure joy, we can stay in that place where our heart is open to learn. Consider it pure joy. I'm going to invite the prayer teams up. We're going to close here in just a minute. There's a powerful principle here. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I so, I so want you to know that God does not dismiss your pain. That God does not see the things you've gone through as trivial. But the things you've gone through can be just huge and heavy and crushing. So it's not that God is seeing what you've been through as trivial. But God wants you to know that whatever you've been through, there's healing in it. He is there to bring healing. And he is there not just to bring healing, but to bring redemption, to bring victory in the midst of it. When we suffer for our own mistakes, we can learn and get better. But sometimes we suffer just because this is a dark world full of evil. Then we learn to persevere. We learn some of those heart disciplines, how to still love when something has come against that. How to still be kind when we see the world is cruel. How to still have a soft heart in darkness. Sometimes God's redemption of the situation is you go through something horrible and you live through it. And then 10 years later, you meet somebody who's in the middle of the situation you were in. And you're able to help them through it. There was no profound lesson about how you needed to change. It was just you learned how to live through it. And now you can help them. Sometimes that's how it's redeemed. But here's the thing. This is simple, but it's profound. And that is that when we take our wounds and our pain and we bring them to the Lord. He brings healing and victory. It can take time. It can be a process. But we can get stronger through it. We don't need to get stuck in a victim mentality. We don't need to uh, never progress. But we can get to the place of healing and victory. So we can consider it pure joy. When we face trials. So let's pray. 
And as we pray, what if our wounds were healed? And what if our wounds were redeemed? Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Let's lay our wounds before the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, your word says to consider it pure joy when we face trials. And we confess to you that some of our trials are so painful, we don't even understand how that's supposed to work. But Lord, by faith, we set our wounds before you. We set our pain before you. We set our hurts before you. Lord, I pray that you would just, in in the minds of each of us right now, you would bring up that pain that you want healed. That you would bring up that wound that you are going to heal. That we could see it and know that you are our healer. And Lord, I know that you are more than a healer. And you don't just heal us, but you bring us to victory. You make us more than conquerors that when we go through hardships and struggles, you redeem and you bring us into a place of strength. Father, I pray faith on each one of us here to believe that you can make us mature and complete, not lacking anything because you heal us and strengthen us through our trials. Let us not be crushed, but let us be overcomers. Lord, let it be. Father, I pray a blessing over each person that's in here right now. Lord, let your peace be upon us. Lord, let your joy be in our hearts. Lord, in the midst of trials, a quiet contentment, a smile on our face, knowing you are with us and that you will bring us up. Father, I pray that we would know your love. We would know that you care about us, whatever situation we're in that we could know your love so much that we have extra to share with others. Lord, let it be. Father, do bind up our broken hearts, heal our wounds, and bring us victory. In Jesus' name, amen.